morning. My name is Adam Moore. I'm one of the ruling elders here at Mercy Hill Presbyterian Church. I'm very thankful for the opportunity to bring God's Word to you this morning. And what's interesting in Presbyterian churches is what I'm doing right now, because I'm not an ordained teaching elder, is called exhorting and not preaching. And we, we use that kind of, like, you know, it's a difference without a distinction or a distinction without a difference, I guess. Um, but it really does highlight the difference between the, the way that we kind of do church and hold the preaching of God's Word in high regard. And so the term preaching itself is actually reserved for member, our, uh, elders who are ordained before God. But this past week and the past few weeks have been a great experience for me, reading God's Word, studying with Pastor Phil. Um, one thing maybe many of you don't know behind the scenes is that uh, Phil does a great job of teaching and training some of the leaders of our church, and it's, um, it's a lot of hard work. I, I have a huge amount of respect for people who do this every week, very difficult to do, and so I'm really thankful and humbled to be able to do this this morning. So we've been going through our series in the book of Mark, and this brings us to chapter 15 in the book of Mark. Last Sunday, we heard about part of the trial of Jesus that happened, but at the high priest's house. And now the events have taken a turn and gone before Pontius Pilate, and that's where we're going to pick up here in Mark chapter 15. Our text is 15 verses, so I'll read them this morning. I'll pray, and then we'll get into it. Mark chapter 15, verse 1, And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things, and Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we're reading in a, an important passage in Scripture this morning, one that tells about the betrayal and deliverance into the hands of evil men of your Son, Jesus Christ. We ask that you would illuminate our hearts and our minds this morning by your Holy Spirit, for us to glean from this what you'd have for us this morning to apply to our lives and to understand the fullness and depth and magnitude of what Christ has done for us on our behalf. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So our text this morning has the feel of a spy novel or a political thriller. There's intrigue, backstabbing, injustice in the name of religion, accusations of treason, guilty consciences, all on graphic display. However, in this political thriller, all these elements lead to the death of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I'd like to begin this morning by reviewing the story with you and then considering together what we can learn from this passage of Scripture. Mark's Gospel records the trial or ordeal of Jesus in two parts, like I mentioned earlier. Last week, we saw that Jesus was tried by the chief priests and scribes at the house of the high priest. And it was at this consultation that the real dirty work of our story takes place. This was less of a trial than an actual conspiracy with the accused present to verify the charges against him. Even in extracting the evidence, the high priest at one point cries out, what further evidence do we need to convict Jesus? Which is sort of a clue that this was an unjust trial. This was a a real conspiracy. So the religious council held a meeting together and decided that it was necessary to put Jesus to death in our previous passage. But the only problem was how. They needed someone else to deliver the final blow to Jesus. So in the first century AD, um, the Romans occupied Judea, and the the religious leaders were allowed to to handle the local affairs. But the capital penalties were reserved for the civil government, the local Roman representative who was the Roman prefect of Judea, Judea named Pontius Pilate. So the religious leaders needed what's called a cleaner to take care of the dirty work and deliver the final verdict and execution. In verse 1, we see that the religious leaders held a consultation early in the morning. They led Jesus bound to Pilate. And although Jesus went willingly with his accusers, they treated him treacherously like a common criminal. So what was the main charge against Jesus? In verse 2, Pilate asks, Are you the king of the Jews? And really, this is the pivotal piece of evidence in our story because the claim to be king was actually one of rebellion. In the eyes of the Romans, there may be little kings and little governors. The scribes and Pharisees kind of had their own little fiefdom set up. But there was really only one true king, and that was Caesar. So the priests and the scribes were orchestrating things behind the scenes to whip up a charge of treason against Jesus accusing him of claiming to be some sort of king, a surefire way to incur the wrath of Rome. Now, treason is a really difficult charge to defend. Rulers are notoriously paranoid, and even the mere whisper of treason will often be magnified in the mind of a a king as an absolute certainty. So the survival instinct kicks up in them and produces a feeling that anybody could be an enemy at any one time. Remember, King Saul, he was notoriously paranoid that David was coming for his throne. I mean, he had good reason to believe that, but but meanwhile, David had the opportunity several times to kill Saul and did not avail himself. He actually refused to take the kingship until the appointed time. But despite the distrustful tendency of those in power, Pilate actually appears relatively level-headed concerning the accusations regarding Jesus. Pilate must have been surprised by the severity of the charge, 
And while we can't say for certain whether Pilate had ever heard of Jesus before this time, it's, it's quite possible that Jesus' healings and teachings had his attention. In any case, our text tells us that Pilate was shrewd enough to know that Jesus' accusers were overzealous. Verse 10 tells us that Pilate perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. So this really is a classic case of takes one to know when Pilate would have been uh, making his way up the Roman elite societal structure. He knew what a rigged trial looked like. He knew what it like, looked like to have backstabbings behind the scene. This wasn't his first time to, to the rodeo, so to speak. But it's for this reason that we're actually even more, res- more surprised at his response. You think that Pilate would be completely hardened to corruption, lies, bribery, and the system. But rather than slam the book on Jesus, he actually has compassion on him. He gives him ample opportunity, he gives Jesus ample opportunity to refute the charges that were levied against him. In verse 4, Pilate says, have you no answer to make? And while the leaders continue to pile on harsh accusations on Jesus, Pilate is amazed that Jesus held his peace. Jesus seems to have caught Pilate's attention. In Mark's account of Jesus, only re- Mark's account, um, we only have a single reply to, to Pilate. In verse 2, take a look. It says, you have said so. That's, if you have a red-letter Bible, that's the only place you see red in this, this whole 15-verse passage. Jesus truly was the king of the Jews, and yet he said nothing more than that. We recall Isaiah's prophecy and the detail about the suffering servant. As a sheep before its shearers is silent, so Jesus opened not his mouth. Jesus silently allowed himself to be delivered into the hands of sinful men. So at this point, you've got to imagine the scene. Pilate is probably frustrated, dumbfounded, um, possibly even a little bit annoyed at Jesus. Maybe even Pilate was angry that Jesus failed to recognize the gravity of the situation. But only the quiet confidence of our Savior, of the God-man, can be so humble in the face of death. Now, Mark doesn't report the nec- uh, record the next part of the story, but Pilate's compassion, or whatever it was that broke through his cynical political skin, he, Pilate attempts to correct the situation by sending Jesus over to Herod. And we don't have that part of the story in our, in our text here. But possibly, or most likely, Pilate is attempting to see if the local matter here could be settled by a lower court. But that's not all. Matthew's gospel records that even Pilate's wife warned Pilate to have nothing to do with Jesus, to not convict him because he was innocent. Now, at this point, Pilate's brain is probably on overload. He's trying to sh- sort out the charges. He's trying to, to do things kind of fairly and justly here. And actually, I kind of feel a little bit of, of pity for Pilate because he's really in a tough spot. Do you think you could handle the, the pressure of maintaining order in a rebel province when a riot was forming? Do you think you could keep your composure when someone claimed to be a local king or when religious leaders hated you because you were forced to collect levies of taxes? 
You had a, a terrorist insurrection going on with Barabbas trying to whip up rebellion. So add to this all the pressure that Pilate must have felt of his own guilty conscience, knowing that he was in front of an innocent man who was about to condemn to death. Pilate had never met such a man, and all these maneuvers indicate that he was probably really struggling here. But then, Pilate had another great idea. Perhaps he could acquit Jesus with a customary release of a prisoner at the time of Passover, as he had done in the past. So at Thanksgiving time, we have this tradition where the president will pardon a local turkey. Everybody's seen that on the TV? And then they, they send it to the local uh, farm to live out its days in peace. Well, Pilate is kind of doing something like that. He had added his own little uh, civil ceremony to the religious ceremony of Passover. We remember the Jewish Passover was a time of sac- both sacrifice and deliverance. The firstborn in Egypt were marked for destruction by the angel of death, but they were delivered by the destruction of another, an innocent lamb who took the firstborn's place. And it seems that Pilate had a kind of a similar, paid in homage to the, to the local custom of, of Passover by releasing to them uh, a prisoner that they chose or that he chose. But this strategy really backfired, didn't it? Because he picked the most radical person he could possibly think of, the insurrectionist, a murderer, in complete contrast to the innocent king, Jesus. So the chief priests and scribes whipped up the crowd into a frenzy to release Barabbas instead of Jesus. The wicked leaders who had plotted for Jesus' death in chapter 14 would not be denied the execution of Jesus. Now, what's really interesting to me, I didn't realize this before I started studying this passage, but the name Barabbas actually is from Bar Abba, like Abba Father. So it's uh, son of the father. That's a really fascinating detail for me. I didn't realize that. So the guilty criminal was given the name the son of the father, and he's released instead of Jesus, who is the righteous, true son of the father. That actually seems more than a coincidence to me. But the irony of this story is that Jesus was the true king, the true son of the father, and he had not committed treason against Rome, even though Barabbas had. He never rebelled openly against Caesar. In fact, when the chief priests and scribes had tempted him to say something against Caesar, he even mentioned that um, it was lawful to pay to Caesar what was Caesar's. But the irony, the further irony here really is that Jesus could not commit treason. It was impossible for him to commit treason because he was the true king. He's the one from whom the civil authority flowed into Rome, into Caesar. He was the one who appointed Pilate as king over Judea and Caesar over the, the, really the entire world. But this, this part of the story, the Barabbas part, really reminds us that the first Adam is the real traitor and us by extension. So we are kind of Barabbas in this story. We are the first Adam. And we are also the, cry, the crowd that cried out for Jesus' crucifixion. So when Jesus was delivered to Pilate, Pilate really was in a political bind. This was a runaway jury, a mob jury, 
that was hell-bent on sentencing Jesus to death on a false charge of treason against Caesar. But it appears that Pilate had somewhat of a keen political mind. He gave the people an out. And verse, take a look at verse 10. In our text, it says, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? Title, use, uh, Pilate using the title king of the Jews kind of seems like leading the witness or leading the jury a little bit. Like, this is the king of the Jews. He's leading the crowd toward an acquittal. But the crowd was whipped up into a frenzy, crying out for the release of Rabbis. Verse 11 the chief priest, it says, the chief priest stirred up the crowd. I, I find that little, I, I find that image kind of funny, like them like pulling the strings above a big like cauldron or something like that and going like this. Stirred up the crowd. I can kind of ima- imagine like some men in long robes with long beards kind of like whispering into ears a little bit. You know, maybe kind of shouting in the crowd. Uh, some a- accusations, maybe kind of like shoving elbows a little bit to kind of create an atmosphere of violence and of kind of like a mob situation going on. So Pilate was stunned by this, and he, he asked the crowd, okay, what shall I do with Jesus then? And the crowd roared, crucify him. And then in- incredulous, Pilate makes a final appeal to the crowd in verse 14. Take a look. It says, why? What evil has he done? Now, at this point, the crowd was in a roar, and uh, I'm wondering whether or not the crowd even heard that last bit of what Pilate actually said. But at this point, Pilate knew that Jesus' fate was sealed. The Jewish plot against Jesus that had been going on all through the book of Mark and all through the Gospels had culminated in this moment. The crowd cried out for Jesus' death, And really, the Roman governor was helpless to turn the tide against Jesus. So let's take a moment now and consider this obvious injustice. Even the Roman ruler over Judea was unable to produce the righteous verdict, the obvious verdict. And this highlights for us the all-too-often reality that we have human injustice in our world. The fact that our leaders are impotent to apply true justice. If Jesus was falsely accused and if he was bound and he was beaten and he was crucified, really what what hope do we have? This episode here serves to give us a longing really for the justice and the righteousness that comes from the law of God. Man's justice oftentimes is not God's justice. Man's justice is subject to bribery deceit, capriciousness, revenge. But God's justice is perfect. It's not swayed by human opinion. Ultimate truth, really, is not subject to the vote of a democracy. It's subject to God's law. So it's here that Jesus may have actually been most tempted to free himself of his bonds, avenge himself. After all, Jesus had legions of angels at his disposal. Hebrews 12, verse 2, tells us that Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. All of the shame and injustice that Jesus faced were not worthy of the retribution 
They were not worthy of revenge because of the joy that was waiting for him on the other side of our story. Jesus indeed was delivered into the hands of the chief priests and scribes by Judas, and they in turn delivered Jesus to Pontius Pilate to suffer through a humiliating trial. And in verse 15, we see that because Pilate wished to satisfy the crowd, Jesus was, it says, delivered over to be crucified. But there's another deliverance coming just three days later. So what can we learn from this text? I think the main idea here is to see how far sinful, wicked people will go to alleviate the burden of their guilty conscience. Remember the scribes and the Pharisees, they were, the Bible says they were pricked to the heart by the cutting words of Jesus all throughout the Gospels. Consider this example from history of the English monarchy, King Henry VIII and his many wives. I just finished reading a book called Thomas Cromwell. Super fascinating. I didn't know very much about the Tudor dynasty really at all. And then we watched a a masterpiece theater series called Wolf Hall, which is about kind of the same thing, which is super fascinating to me. You think we have political intrigue and crazy stuff happening today. You would not believe the stuff that happened in 16th century England. So Thomas Cromwell was a 16th century English reformer that was called upon by Henry VIII several times to kind of like fix his marriage situation. He was kind of the cleaner here in the story. Cromwell was a shrewd royal servant. He was a lawyer, and he was adept at orchestrating events behind the scenes for the benefit of his employers, first the archbishop and then the king, and also himself, actually. And Henry badly wanted a divorce from his wife of about 20 years, Catherine of Aragon, who was the queen. And um, he was in love, the king, Henry, was in love with Anne Boleyn. So he called upon Thomas to help secure approval from the Catholic Church so he could marry her. And an eager Cromwell, he's uh, willingly obliged and secured the reforms necessary for a legal annulment and also separation from the Catholic Church. So you can kind of uh, thank Thomas Cromwell for the the Anglican Church. But so instead of just merely securing the separation, um, he secured the marriage for Anne Boleyn, but then eventually the king tired of Anne Boleyn and then plotted against her as well, and so King Henry wanted to get rid of her. So Thomas Cromwell actually delivered charges of treason and adultery against Anne Boleyn. She was convicted and beheaded, and then King Henry was free and went on to marry a few more times, and each time Thomas Cromwell was called in to help fix the marriage situation. And uh, unfortunately for Thomas, he secured a, uh, a political marriage to Anne of Cleves, the German princess, sight unseen. And when Henry VIII saw her, he was revolted and commented on her disgusting smell. <laughs> I guess that's what you get. <clears throat> So, but he, Thomas had risen to second in command of all of England. But often Cromwell was called upon to fix things for the king each time he delivered. But uh, after the ill-fated marriage to Anne of Cleves, um, Thomas Cromwell's enemies were all too eager to capitalize on this misstep 
orchestrating his downfall. And just four years after Thomas Cromwell secured the death of Anne Boleyn, he himself was also beheaded. His impressive political career of fixing situations had come to an end. He had been undone by his own backroom dealings. And when the charges of treason came up against Thomas Cromwell, it was a foregone conclusion. It had to happen because he had been behind the scenes doing too many things. He had to be convicted, and he was convicted on July 28th, 1540, at the age of 55. So the story kind of tells us how far a corrupt king will go to avoid dealing with his own guilt, with his own lust, with his own desires, with his own uh, vanity, really. But you and I really aren't much different than Henry VIII. We are not very honest with ourselves or with God about our sins. We have uh, foolish, man-made efforts to try to fix our own sin problems. We try to go behind the scenes and connive situations so that either we look good or feel good about our sin. It really seems like people will do anything to fix their situations instead of dealing with their guilt before the Lord. That's what the scribes and Pharisees did. They were cut to the heart. And so they desired to kill Jesus. Men are kind of famous for this. Instead of doing the thing that's necessary, like reading the instructions, that's the last thing they do. That's like the cliche, right? Just read the instructions. But it's not limited to men. Men and women, boys and girls, are all looking for some other way to cleanse ourselves, to cleanse our consciences, and deal with our sin beside the cross. But we don't have to play these political games of intrigue. My friends, Jesus was delivered into the hands of the sinners so that you could be delivered from sin. And although the chief priests and scribes thought their plan had worked perfectly, although Satan thought that his plan had worked perfectly, they all failed to realize that the perfect plan of God the Father from the foundation of the world had worked all along. It was God's sovereign plan to deliver Jesus up to be crucified so that we might be delivered from sin and death. I have a quote here from a great hymn that we sing usually around uh, Good Friday time. It was written in 1640, Ah, Holy Jesus. Are you familiar with this one? I think we've done this one on Good Friday. Ah, Holy Jesus, how hast thou offended that we to judge thee have in hate pretended, by foes derided, by thine own rejected, O most afflicted. And one of my, my favorite verse in this is verse 3, which says, Lo, the good shepherd for the sheep is offered, the slave hath sinned, and the son hath suffered, for our atonement, while we nothing heeded, God interceded. Same thing with Barabbas. He was the guilty traitor. But instead, the one who could not commit treason was offered up in his place. The slave has sinned, but the son has suffered. The shepherd died for the sheep. So what do we learn from this? We need to give up trying to deliver our own redemption on our own. Stop trying to fix things. Unlike Jesus, we are in fact guilty. You are in fact guilty before a holy God. 
The charge against Jesus was, you say that you're a king. And before the just judge of the universe, we act as if we are king. We've committed treason against the judge of the universe, against the true king and against his kingdom. We are condemned justly for establishing our own kingdoms. All of our attempts to justify ourselves, to atone for our treason is futile. The only thing that can save us now is for the king himself to take our place. The trial that Jesus endured, we will never endure. He has stood in the dock in our place. You can just imagine a crowd of demons chanting, crucify him, crucify her. But they've already been met with divine justice. Jesus was delivered into the hands of sinners and has delivered us into the hands of the Father. So I'd like to conclude this morning by suggesting a couple ways that you can respond to this morning's message. Firstly, we shouldn't get discouraged by injustice, backroom dealings, treachery, injustice by our civil and local leaders. We've just read about the worst injustice in the history of the world, and yet Jesus suffered that injustice willingly. He knew that it served God's plan for deliverance. Jesus was baptized into injustice. The incarnation itself was the injustice. We talk about the humiliation of Jesus. The incarnation was the true humiliation, that fact that he even had to come and save us. So our Savior was falsely accused unfairly tried, scornfully executed, yet through tragic, the tragic injustice that happened to Jesus, by faith we have a glorious injustice credited to our account. It is unjust, unjust that we should receive the benefits of Jesus' death. In and through Christ alone, you are delivered from the death that you deserve. So don't get discouraged about injustice. Secondly, the reality of injustice doesn't mean you have to accept it as inevitable. Quite the opposite. Jesus has dealt a fatal blow to, the injustice, on, to injustice on the cross. And so you should not turn a blind eye to injustice. Recognize that this world is filled with unjust persons, willing and ready to use the law and force and their positions for their own evil goals and ends. And here we need to be honest. Religious leaders, including Christian leaders, even pastors and elders, even in our own denomination, can, per- can often be perpetuators of injustice. Likewise, civil authorities are perpetuators of injustice, but it's not just people with official titles. It's you and I. Mob rule. Ordinary individuals like you and me can perpetuate injustice even with the arguments and disagreements we have with our neighbors and our friends. So instead of being those people who perpetuate injustice, we need to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. The phrase harmless points to our Christian calling to be righteous in all of our dealings. The other part, wise as serpents, suggests that we need to think creatively and strategically about how to pursue true justice, the true justice of God. 
And I know many of you are involved in various uh, activities related to justice. Some when it comes to racial justice, some when it comes to justice for the unborn, political justice, justice for prisoners. We as a church should be keenly aware of injustice in our world. And this passage highlights the injustice that happened to Jesus. So with this as a framework, and as I close, we must understand when and where justice occurs in our society that we should work to relieve it because Jesus has suffered the true injustice in our place and we should work for the glory of God to help eliminate justice wherever it is found. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that Jesus suffered injustice in our place. The wrath that we deserved for the high crime of treason against your holy and just law and against you as creator was worthy of death, the death that Jesus went through. We have been like Barabbas. We have been traitors and murderers in our hearts, thieves and adulterers. We have done all these things and more. But yet Jesus took our place. He was delivered into the hands of sinful men so that we might be delivered into your glorious kingdom. And as we seek to understand this and how it affects our lives, we ask that you would give us a sensitivity to pursuing justice, truth, righteousness in our own world. Forgive us in ways that we have been unjust. We have been like the servant who was forgiven a great debt, but yet grabbed our fellow servant by the scruff of the neck and demanded our justice. Lord, help us to be just. Help us to be righteous people who love you, who love your law and your word and are just basking in the glory of the injustice shown to Jesus so that we might be sons and daughters of the King. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Church House located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro, off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.